and welcome to the classroom, your lit circle live, kind of live? Yeah, somewhat, somewhat live. <laughs> live adjacent. <laughs> live adjacent. Uh, our attempt to bring a good literature circle to you. Um, I'm Haley. I'm Brett. And today we're talking about the first uh, install, the first book in the Harry Potter series, of course, The Sorcerer's Stone. Um, the Philosopher's Stone for all our Brits out there. <laughs> right. For everyone else, really. Yeah, everybody but America, because we just like to be just a little bit special. <laughs> um, so we kind of just want to kick off. I think we're going to start with uh, a little bit of a plot summary. Uh, hit the big points, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, starting off, we have, um, we start off with the story of baby Harry Potter. Um, it follow, it, moments after his parents' death, um, of course, and his kind of delivery to the Dursleys and to the muggle world. Um, and the novel itself follows his first year at Hogwarts, uh, this lovely little school for magical kids. So yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how general we need to yeah. be. <laughs> uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure we don't need to go too general. Um, <laughs> And, like, al along the way, uh, he meets friends and, like, learns more about the culture surrounding things and finds people that are fully indoctrinated as well as people that are, like, only half know the world. Um, and there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of a learning curve both for Harry and the reader that everyone goes through. Uh, I think it's done fairly well. Uh, mm -hmm. And he finds out about some of the, the great evils uh, going through the world right now, specifically one as he who shall not be named. <laughs> um, so, of course, we see, the, like I said, the novel starts off uh, with Harry, Harry's life in the muggle or the kind of non-magical world. And we see um, the family, he, the family uh, he's been left with, the Dursleys, um, with a very, like, a kind of distant relationship to him. Uh, they are just straight up mean to Harry. <laughs> like, that's yeah. the easiest way to put it. They're the worst. Um, I hold a lot of hatred towards the Dursleys. I'm gonna be honest. Yeah, I mean it's they're they're easy to hate. Yeah, the man, the man has the man has like two lives. Vernon has like two loves in his life, and that's his wife and his kid, and like that's respectable. But everything else he does, that's not include their adopted kid. Yeah, well, and of course we see that um, you know Harry's living under the staircase and is basically their housemaid. Really, it it kind of puts in perspective how rough Harry had it with. Um, right in the middle of the chapter, The Sorting Hat, the Dursleys had never exactly starved Harry, but he'd never been allowed to eat as much as he'd like. Dudley had always taken anything that Harry really wanted, even if it made him sick. Harry piled his plate with a bit of everything, except with peppermints, and began to eat. It was all delicious. We see, like, like they, he wasn't openly, he was abused. Um, but Harry but wasn't has this, like, this, like, shell of guilt about, oh, well... Yeah, it happens, and you're just like, man. Yeah, no. It's, it, it's very, it's 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 abuse, and it's not like it's hidden, but it's also done to an extent that, like, compared to like a serious abuse victim, it like can make him feel belittled. So he doesn't really think about it this much. Like, it's only when he sort of leaves the leaves the nest that he had, if you can call it a nest, uh, and goes like out on his own, that he experiences, oh, this isn't how life is supposed to be. Uh, and it's, yeah. it's 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 very grip it's very gripping. I, I like that sort of part of it. And well, we can talk on this more in later episodes. But there is a bit of a comparison that I drew between 
Harry and the uh, the house elves later on mm-hmm. um, that I, I think is good. House elves themselves, tangent, uh, aren't. <laughs> I don't like the depiction of them very well. I think the sort of like happy to serve mentality is a little problematic, but well, I still can, think that... We can kind of hit on that too about how... So of course we know that J.K. Rowling is not the best Eight. human. Um, and we kind of see that. So a little bit later, of course, after Harry meets Hagrid, and they go to buy his stuff for school. We see how grossly she describes the goblins, which are, I mean, very obviously a a gross caricature of Jewish people. Um, She she points out specifically their noses and their squinted eyes, I believe. Yeah, and like, she just, and she doesn't, there are multiple places in chapter five, in the Diagon Alley chapter, that she's just, it just, ooh, it makes me uncomfy. Yeah, and it's... you see it again, too, um, not to such a sharp extent, but a little bit with Seamus Finnegan, um, who is the only... Uh, the only Irish, Irish character. Yeah, and he's also very caricature, of course. Uh, we learn in this book, and a little bit later, that, of course, he has a knack for making things explode. Um, and one of the first times we see him, he's trying to turn his drink and his goblet to, to alcohol. And there's just multiple places where, also his accent, um, J.K. Rowling does a really awesome job of making sure you can hear the tone that the characters kind of command in, mm. in how she writes them. However, it's very disgusting, specifically when she's writing when a, in... When it's a racial or, like, stereotype. Yeah. For example, so in all of Seamus's lines, before he talks about his, like, his heritage and stuff, he sounds like every other student, like the, the, uh, the pattern, like the vocal patterns are very similar. And then when he's talking about his family, it is just very, very, the dialect is heavy. Um, which, and when you see it for a character, like for Hagrid, who's kind of meant to be portrayed as a little, you know, less educated and less formal and the only other character we get like i said the only other character outside of seamus that we get that is hagrid mm-hmm. um but then again for the rest of the novel seamus doesn't have an accent um like, yeah it's in the writing and i just i i know i picked up on that and it kind of it kind of threw me i was like there's he used to he used to talk different and i had to like go back to make sure i wasn't like making it up or something yeah which and that kind of falls into like the the movie depictions changing how we perceive stuff as well um but of course, um, so we're introduced to Harry, and uh, of course, when he goes, his intro into the into the Muggle War or into the the magical wizarding world um, is through Hagrid, who is the lovely the the gatekeeper, the garden keeper of of Hogwarts. Um, we learn that Hagrid is not the the. I don't know that smartest is right. He's, he's very intelligent in his own sense, but he's very loudmouthed. He's very blabby. <laughs> um, he's he's less he's 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 wise, but he's not exactly like intelligent. And, and yeah, that, that maybe that's a bit mean to say, but like we we learn that fairly honest. He's like leading things. Things he knows how to get from uh, A to B and knows how to guide Harry, but he's not book smart. Rather, he's very he's also very easy to sway. Yes. Um. I think that's something we can talk about too a little bit later when we're talking about characters individually. Um, but Hagrid is a very big people pleaser. He likes when people are 
uh, kind to him. When people uh, say very flattering things to him, he's very willing to do whatever they ask of him. And that comes into play, of course, later in the novel with, um, with Quirrell and the dragon egg, but we'll kind of work through that, I guess. Yeah. Um, so of course, Hagrid kind of leads Harry through, through Diagon Alley. And we learn that Harry is famous um, in his own sense because of who he defeated as a kid, which is uh, he who should not be named Voldemort. Um, and this is a very like unearned fame in Harry's mind. I think we see him being very kind of backward about people coming up and congratulating him, which makes sense because this kid has lived in the shadows his entire existence mm -hmm. and up until this point. And he's now thrusted onto a big pedestal for everyone to see before he even yeah. does anything in his mind. Yeah. And, um, and we get our first look at Professor Quirrell um, in this chapter as well. Um, the very, very kind of stuttery and weak man um and of course as we go through um then of course we lead to harry going to the wizarding world full on uh at platform nine and nine and three quarters um i would just like to say it's very messed up that despite they knew harry was being abused by the dursleys they repeatedly sent him back and i understand yeah. that there is some magical mystical thing about it that is discovered in later books but that's so messed up. Is there nowhere else this poor kid is there can no, go? Is there no on-campus housing that he can stay? Like some summer right? housing? Just, like, if, oh my gosh. And if we're breaching that subject, I'd like to bring this up. And we can probably touch on this one more later on. But the fact that they were like, oh, he has no living relatives. So we're going to send him here. Uh, and like, it's like, oh, but they're, he's better off with family of here rather than just putting him into some other adopted family. And it's... It's interesting because the book almost has a the book has a very like very contrasting views of family within itself. Like it talks mm -hmm. about like the whole thing that's protecting Harry was like it was a mother's love, and it's, it always talks about like how like it puts a lot of emphasis on these deaths of like James and Lily, and later on Sirius. Where it's like these familial deaths hit hard to Harry, but it also has this like t this tone of like. I don't know if it's quite rejection or rebellion from his like adopted parents of the Dursleys and it's, it's, or I guess aunt and uncle. Um, and it's, it's very strange how it contrasts and I'm not sure it goes as well as I think I remembered it going. Yeah. And I think, well, and even, okay. So like I said, just like, uh, of course we see him going back to the abusive situation and how rude the Dursleys are to him right before he gets onto the platform and driving mm -hmm. him to King, King's Cross. And then shortly after, we are introduced to the Weasleys, this ginormous, loving family um, who Molly Weasley, despite being a, a very poor woman, doesn't bat an eye about adopting Harry into her little family. Um, yes. And I just, oh, I have so much to gush about Molly <laughs> Weasley. I love her so much. Um, I do want to touch, though, yet again, how messed up the, the Dursleys are. Um, right there, the first uh, about two or three pages into the the chapter about uh, the the journey from platform nine and three quarters. Um, of course, the Dursleys are dropping him off at King's Cross, and it says, uh, "Have a good term," says Uncle Vernon with an even nastier smile. He left without a word. Harry turned and saw the Dursleys drive away. All three of them were laughing. Harry's mouth went dry. This is when they realize, when Harry has this panic, that there is no nine and three quarters that he can see. There is platform nine and there is platform 10. 
And it's just so heartbreaking that they, the, the, the Dursleys don't even bat an eye. They're just like, ha ha, 11 year old child, get wrecked, leaving it's, you in the middle of London. It's, yeah, it's, it's not even. so messed up. It's not even like it's like a, ha ha, you got pranked. Well, let's go home. Like, if that, I would feel just even, like, not much, but like a little better if it was just like a, well, too bad. And like someone stopped him. It's like, oh, you going to this quarter? Like, it's right over here. And then they like sneered him and they walked away. They leave him there. Just yeah, they straight up, they have no intention of coming back. Of com- no, and they don't, they, it's in, like you said, it's in the middle of London. He wouldn't be getting back. No. And it's just like, it's so heartbreaking. And I just, oh my gosh. And of course, like, we see the, the only reason Uncle Vernon even gets out of the car onto the platform or like into King's Cross is to prove Harry wrong. Mm-hmm. And you have to, this is, a, this is a child. He is 11 years old. It's just so, oh my gosh. But of course, immediately we are introduced to the Weasleys almost on the same page. Um, and I just, Molly Weasley, love her so much. Is her just going, now, what's the number, boys? And, of course, this woman has sent, we learn, has sent six children through, like, this is the sixth child to go off to Hogwarts at this point. Um, and we see her still be like, all right, well, what's that number? Does anybody happen to know where we're going? Because she sees this poor 11-year-old child in clothes that are way too big to, for him with a trunk and an owl and knows that he needs a little bit of help. And I just, I just love Molly Weasley for that so much. Yeah. I, I really, that, that scene was strange to me at first, but like I understood it when I put like very minimal brain power into it. It's just like, <laughs> why is she just announcing this? Like, I don't think I really picked up on that before. I thought it was just like a, oh, she just so happens to be asking your kids. But then it's, it's yeah, it's on second, like, look, it is obviously her trying to go like, oh, this kid is, oh no. And like, just trying to get attention like really quickly to him. And of course, like, and another scene same chapter a little bit later is after the twins realize that harry is who he is they run up to him or they run up to their mom and they're like oh my gosh that's that's harry you know it's harry potter and she's just like what's it matter you be nice to the boy leave him alone kid doesn't deserve what you're trying to do and it's just so i just i love her so much i just um, we can continue gushing about Molly Weasley here in a minute. Yeah, I could go on for hours about how much I just love the woman. Um, so then, of course, we're introduced to the to the train, and we get these really beautiful scenes of Ron and Harry kind of developing this friendship, um, unintentionally because Harry or, or, or try this again. Ron is very like not necessarily begrudging to become friends with Harry. But he's very afraid of being friends with Harry. Yeah, he's just going um, along with emotions because he, kind of like Harry, doesn't really get much of the spotlight being that sort of like a member of like six or seven kids in that family. So he's yeah, kind of, and, he's kind of avoiding of it almost. Um, well, because he because right there, um, he he ends up on the in the car with Ron or with Harry, and he's just like, well, honestly, I thought it might have been one of Fred and George's jokes, but. He's like very awkward about it. He's like, "Do you actually have you know any points to his forehead?" And um, we see this very sweet scene of them kind of becoming friends, kind of bonding over 
this is Harry's first look into the wizarding world on a personal level. Mm-hmm. It's also Ron's, like, to think about it, one of Ron's first experiences looking into the muggle world. Um, yeah. And it's very it, sweet. There's, like, there's a little later on that they touch on, but it's it's through the skewed lens of, like, his father's, in, like, looks into the muggle world. So, like, yeah. he knows a little bit, but he probably knows as much about that Harry does about magic. Like, just base rumors and things like yeah. that. Yeah. And, and of, like, stuff he's heard in passing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, this gives us a lovely scene of Harry just going crazy and buying a whole bunch of things off the cart, off the little snack cart, and Ron awkwardly being like, oh, I'll eat my sandwich, don't mind me. Harry's like, no, 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 eat this. I'm not going to eat all of it. <laughs> um, and you just see just this sweet screw interaction. The other, screw the other kids on that, like, train, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, Harry said it's mine. Like, unless they some more food in, like... And there's another bit. Uh, I don't want to jump ahead too Go far, it. but there is a like, uh, there's like, the, there's a big thing of like when Harry and Ron and later Hermione like, like grow as friends. And there's a scene later uh, that like touches on it. And there's a quote that I like. Um, it's right after they like take down the mountain troll in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. It's um, there is a quote that says, uh, "There are some things you can't share without ending up uh, ending up liking each other." And knocking out a twelve foot mountain troll is one of them. And yeah. not only does that sort of like go with the I don't know what style of humor it is, but like that goes with the the style that J.K. Rowling does. Like it's it's a lot of like uh, sort of humor that doesn't really like immediately jump out at you, but you have like a little bit of a light chuckle to. And I think it it establishes like these these guys weren't immediately friends, and they still aren't even to that point. And however far that is into the book, yeah. Um, but they they grow because they deal with like these sort of things. And we can also touch on later that like Ron and Harry yeah. are foils to each are to each other in their upbringing. Uh, and there's a lot of foils in this book if you, if you like look into it a lot. Yeah. I think it's I think it's nice that that sort of happens and they still become friends regardless of those things. Well, and because we see them genuinely being mean to Hermione mm-hmm. when they interact with her before the mountain troll. I mean, the reason Hermione ends up running off is because they were mean to her, and we just see every time we run into Hermione before they are friends, she is has this very I, not necessarily I am better than you, but I am definitely smarter than you attitude. But she's also willing to teach everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very much of like, don't you want to know what I know? Why wouldn't you want to know what I know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's... It annoys very... the boys to it. Yeah. And, it <laughs> and I think, and you were talking about the foils, and I think that's where we see Hermione is a foil to the boys. Yes. Um, if... Because we see her, she is so afraid of being left in the dark. Of course, um, Hermione is muggle-born, and, mm-hmm. and so, of course, there, in their friendship alone, we see the three different blood status, quote-unquote blood statuses, uh, of students at Hogwarts. We see uh, the muggle-borns of no wizarding descent, half-bloods, which are of mostly wizard descent, with muggles closely related to them, and then pure-bloods, which are no traceable muggle heritage. Um, and, and we get... We get a lot of, we'll kind of touch into that when we talk about themes, too. We see a lot of, like, disputing between blood statuses. Um, and, of course, we see that, we see this, like, superiority, superiority complex in, in Draco Malfoy, um, who we meet right there around the same time. We meet him back in Diagon Alley, but his name is never mentioned um, until, 
the journey to platform nine and three quarters. And he is nasty. He is a nasty, gross, arrogant little kid. Um, he is the little snot, ho- snot nosed brat that everybody has like very bad memories about from elementary school. <laughs> he is a kid who would punch you in the face on the playground and cry and make the teacher think that you, you know, that you hurt him. And I just, I have such a strong, and I just, oh gosh, that's a whole nother. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course we get our first look into Hogwarts as well. I keep going here. We get our first look into Hogwarts uh, in the chapter of the Sorting Hat. Um, this is when the students are walked into the building uh, after seeing the beautiful castle and, you know, what life they could have. Um, they are walked in and introduced to McGonagall, who gives them a spark note edition of the sorting. And here we're introduced to all the houses and to the sorting hat song. And it's just so, this is where we get a good view of all the characters too. This isn't a big school. Like, realistically speaking, there was maybe 500 kids in this entire building. And it is ginormous. Because <laughs> like, with how Harry kind of talks about the students, like there's not a lot of them. So like, in his year at least, there's one, like, one dorm of just Gryffindor boys of their year. Um, but, yeah. And um, soon, soon after that, of course, we get into the classes and we meet all the separate professors. Um, you have Professor Flitwick, who is just the sweet old man, just, you know, teaching charms. Um, yeah. No, yeah, his charms. Uh, and then, of course, McGonagall, the head of Gryffindor House, who teaches Transfiguration. Very stern woman, but we see her, of course, let go just a little bit, like, later on. Um, and then we also meet Professor Snape, who is a douche. Um, <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. I mean, he, he's, he's a douche, and obviously, people that <laughs> know the series know that he's... I was going to say, people know in the series, like, who know the series, know that he softens a little bit. But I'm, I'm, I am firmly in the train that he still was and always is a douche. The worst... Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit when we talk about authority, which is one of the main themes for the novel. But, like, Snape is so mean. Um, I just, like, the, the chapter titled The Potions Master mostly talks about how awful he is to them. And, like, the man gets pleasure from the students being wrong. And that's just, first off, that's not how you teach. Um, but that's a whole different, I just, oh, my gosh, there's so much hatred in my heart for Snape. Um... One of my notes at the end of the chapter just reads, Snape is a garbage teacher who shouldn't have a job. (laughs) (laughs) Which is totally valid, I think. Um, A little bit later, we follow the rivalry brewing between Harry and Malfoy. Um, The beginning of chapter nine starts off with, Harry had never never believed he would meet a boy he hated more than Dudley. Uh, But that was before he met Draco Malfoy. Dudley beat Harry for years yet interacting with draco malfoy in a small setting makes harry hate him more than the dude who literally beat him up i wasn't i wasn't sure if that was like some like real like a real jump in like uh, like relations there or it was just that draco malfoy was that bad and I'm, i'm trying to think maybe um maybe it is that Draco's just that awful and it might be I mean I know I do this now at 20 years old of the thing where like 
if somebody is not actively in front of me, I forget how much, you know, how, what, how I think of them. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so maybe it's because Dudley is not currently aggravating Harry that it is, it is Malfoy he can focus his hatred on. But I think later in the series, we still find that Draco Malfoy is significantly worse. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, so we have, you know, this, also in this chapter, we start with Harry and Draco's kind of attempts to be each other's demise. Of course, we have the whole, um, the Quidditch thing happens right around here. Um, and Malfoy is just, oh, this is, this is a chapter we find that Harry is naturally a good flyer. And we find that because Malfoy's being a douchebag and bullying Neville, who is just the sweetest little human who tries his best. And we just find that the Draco is being mean to him and Harry tries to stand up for him. And it ends up, instead of Harry getting into any sort of trouble with McGonagall later, we find that, of course, he is going to be essentially drafted onto the Quidditch team. No questions asked. Yeah. They were like, give this 11-year-old a broom. He's got the star spot. Let's go. <laughs> um, also, There's this also sweet moment. So, of course, um, after the whole interaction, while it the practice uh Malfoy and Harry get into it and Malfoy challenges Harry to a duel and Harry is freaking out he does not know magic he has no clue um and and you know Malfoy just goes wizard's duel one's only no contact he's like what's the matter you've never heard of a duel a duel before I suppose and Ron doesn't bat an eye just goes of course he has I'm a second who's yours let's go you know you have Ron, who's just immediately like, all right, Harry, ride or die, let's go. <laughs> and this also gives us the beautiful scene of, of Harry panicking. He goes, and what if I wave my wand and nothing happens? Uh, throw it away and punch him in the nose, Ron suggested. <laughs> <laughs> so Ron, I just, I just, oh, I love their friendship so much throughout this. Um, and this is also, this chapter is where we also see uh, both Hermione and Neville kind of getting roped in to Harry and Ron's shenanigans, I guess yeah. you could say. Um, and I also think this kind of brews the rivalry between the Slytherin and Gryffindors. Um, and it just kind of, you know, goes from there. And then of course, um, Hermione is so mad at the boys after they sneak out for the duel, which fuels her, them butting heads aggressively, um, which then leads to Harry and Ron saying a very, like, very nasty things about Hermione um, that lead her upset. Like, she runs away from them. Mad. Yeah, it's... Which it's, ends up why she gets attacked by a troll. You gotta, you gotta say some nasty stuff to get someone to, like, fully run away. And, like, that's... Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's very strange. Yeah, I was gonna say. That that troll scene we, we kinda already already touched on. It sort of establishes the main uh friendship, mainly between uh Harry and Ron, but like it also Hermione a bit in the end. Like those they're the main two fighting it, but like she is also there and helping them out. And I think the way that they, they sort of take out this this monster in front of them with the, like the very little magical knowledge that they have so far. Uh, and also the thing that they teased Hermione on in pronunciation earlier, I think is very, is very nice. And it's not really a callback. I don't know what you call that, but just like in, in reference to that, I think it's very an nice. Immediate, yeah. It's like an immediate payoff. Yeah. Um, well, and we also see, of course, this is also where we see that Hermione 
despite being super smart and knows every, you know, knows every charm, everything that you might need to know at her age, it still shows that she, in fact, does not know how to fight. Yeah. She freezes up. And if it wasn't for, you know, um, Ron and Harry kind of thinking on their feet, Hermione would have been done for. Oh, and I yeah. think I think that gives Hermione her little dose of humility um, that she was gratefully needing. Yeah. Um, because of course she's very she's very not necessarily pretentious, but very know-it-all. Um, before this, she um, does everything and anything in her power to make sure that everybody knows that she's the smartest. Um, but she's kind of she's caught with she's caught empty-handed when the troll comes after her. She's literally petrified. Um, and Harry and Ron just, they don't know much, but they're like, well, we'll figure this out, I guess. Yeah, we'll do the one spell we know. Yeah, and of course then we see immediately Harry or Hermione lies uh, to McGonagall about why they were even going after the troll um, to save the boys, to keep them from getting in trouble. And it's just so sweet. And of course we see um, in the next chapter, Quidditch, the, their friendship is solidified at this point. Hermione mm. is a part of this gang um, because she, of course, this is where we see her helping Harry get ready for his first, his first Quidditch match. Um, her kind of keeping up on Harry and Ron from this point on about their schoolwork. And at the same time, the boys work to like, kind of relax Hermione on breaking the rules. She's not as, like, uppity about following every little guideline. Now she's kind of more like, well, we'll still follow the rules, but if we can break them for a good cause, we're going to break them. <laughs> and, of course, in the first Quidditch match, we see her straight up light a professor on fire um, it, because she thought that he was the one hurting Harry. And throughout the first match, of course, you see... Um, Harry's room, broom has been bewitched to fly higher than it should. And he's almost, I mean, like, if he would have, if he would have fell off his broom, he would have been dead. Mm -hmm. No questions asked. <laughs> and Hermione doesn't blink an eye. She just goes, all right. And she runs over to the teacher stands, lights Snape on fire, and they win the match, you know? Um, and this is where we kind of see the different kind of fame. We see Harry's earned fame. Uh, in this chapter, in the Quidditch chapter. Uh, for once, it is something he has done to earn people kind of gawking at him and being like, oh my gosh, that's Harry Potter. Um, for a small moment, he is known as Harry Potter, the seeker of the Gryffindor Quidditch, the youngest seeker of the, you know, the century. Yeah. Instead of Harry Potter, who defeated Voldemort when he was a year old. Um, and I think that's a big change in Harry's personality. And then, um, of course, we're introduced soon after to the mirror of Irised. I think we're going <laughs> to think that's how it's said. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and, of course, we're introduced to that. And we see the difference in um, this is where the theme of desire really, most of this chapter is strictly desire and talking about, you know, the different things. And we see... A little bit, too, of Malfoy's still douchiness kind of flowing through. He's very upset that Gryffindor beat Slytherin in the Quidditch match, and he's just very... He's jabbing at Harry for things that he has no right to speak on, really. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he starts off with trying to bully Harry about being Seeker and how he's not that good, except 
everybody's gonna argue him on that. And so he's mad and upset. So he just starts being like straight up mad to like mean to Harry about the fact he's not going home for Christmas. He's staying at Hogwarts. Um, his family doesn't love him. How dare he even think that people could love him? Like it's so yeah, messed it's, up. It's it's some rough stuff, but. I will say though we could be here forever if we just if we only talk about Harry was being uh, was like was people were mean to Harry in this part because that is kind of the <laughs> central that could the, be the subtitle right. of the book series <laughs> Harry Potter and the kid who got the, who got bullied the most <laughs> oh my gosh and well and then of course also in this chapter too, I, I think that's important to mention just because of the fact this is where we see Harry's pseudo family come through. Uh, the Weasley, th- at this point, he receives Christmas presents from the Weasleys, and Molly doesn't bat an eye about taking him in, and I just, uh, yet again, Molly Weasley. Um, uh, kind of spark-noting addition. The ending, really, from the half point on, like, once we're in Hogwarts, it moves quick. Um, we go straight through to the fact that there is the Sorcerer's Stone, um, created by this dude named Nicholas Flamel, um, he is just trying, you know, it's basically an elixir for life. It's going to, it helps keep people alive or for them to, like, get alive. Yeah. And we see that there's a creepy thing in the woods killing unicorns to basically uh, stay alive. And that's basically what jumpstarts us into the end of the chapter, into the end of the novel. Uh, we learn that, of course, Quill has been harboring Voldemort on the back of his skull this entire time. And the fact, of course, we have Harry, Ron, and Hermione going through these these different hoops uh, to get to the final battle. Remind you, the these like tasks are set up by professors. Yeah, and, and this is I was waiting till we talked on this one. <laughs> this is wild to say the least. Okay, <laughs> so like. I don't want to take too much time on this one, but like I had a whole section on my notes to develop to this. They are protecting the the magical MacGuffin, the Sorcerer's Stone, um, and it is it is supposed to give everlasting youth. And they say that it is it would be detrimental and horrible if like someone bad got it, such as Voldemort. There, that is the entire thing that they are trying to support against. And I mean, I, and they so they have each teacher or at least the, the ones we talk about the most set up like their little like trial for it and not only are they all dismantled pretty easily by some first years but like some of them are like very strange for like they, they, like these are not like locks on a key ring that like only the professor knows this is like oh the dog falls asleep to music and if you ask any teacher they know that knowledge uh or it's like the um um, where was it? Like the the devil's uh, like what were they called? The devil snares. The devil snare. Yeah. yeah, devil snares are like they are like quite simply solved by a spell that they got taught like very early on in the thing. It's just like oh, the glow of the light scares the plants away. Like it's 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 a lot of like things that are set up even by like McGonagall. It's like these are like fairly simple. Like as long as you put a little bit of like knowledge into it, like it's I feel like Voldemort could have gotten through this easy and like. I, the, there is a they touch on that like the uh like during the i think snape's potion thing uh, hermione says like 
oh well like a lot of a lot of wizards only rely on magic instead of like logic and like the lug the muggles like main tool is logic so they don't really rely on it as much and that's a lot of the puzzles are sort of logic based you need to do a little bit of thinking so it's kind of explained in that way but it still feels a little meh to me it, it feels yeah. just like a plot device to like show that these kids are smart and that she needs an easy puzzle for her first year to like get through well i think i guess in my mind i kind of excuse it too of like the logistical side of thing like you said it is a mogul it's a muggle tool mm-hmm. and of course we have we'll learn later in the series of course that voldemort everything and anything muggle is just not his style mm-hmm. he refuses to acknowledge it so I guess they were relying, like, banking on the fact that Voldemort was just going to be an arrogant little, like, SOB. <laughs> I don't need logic. I just I'm, need magic. I, I've known a few, uh, like, group project partners that have denied logic such as that, so I can understand it a little bit. And, of course, we're, uh, towards the end of the book, we're revealed the fact that it is Quirrell, not Snape, who has been ultimately trying to kill Harry. Um... We also get the little note from Dumbledore because Dumbledore finds Harry as he's on like the brink of death. Um, and Dumbledore's like, yeah, Snape would probably try not to kill you. He's indebted to your father who he hates. Um, but this is him trying to repay your father's memory, I think. And it's just so, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange one at the very least. Like, I don't know, it's... We could I we could devote an entire <laughs> podcast just to talking about Snape for me. So I won't Snape touch. The yeah, I I will like, not touch on that. But like, we'll dive a little bit into that towards the end too. Yeah. Know, when we talk about the characters, um, and of course, um, kind of like what you mentioned earlier, Grant. The hardest part of the entire thing set up to protect the Sorcerer's Stone is probably the dog. Yeah, is Hagrid's contribution to this, which is a three-headed dog named Fluffy. And the fact that this kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier was Hagrid is very bad about letting things slip that he shouldn't. Granted, it's very messed up. Somebody sat at a bar and got him obscenely drunk to pull information from him. Um, But the information they got from him was exactly what they needed. Um, And it was exactly how uh, the dog went to sleep. And yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's not much else we can get. It's, it's just, yeah. And then, of course, we see at the very end of the book, they're sending Harry back to the Dursleys. Um, poor kid gets off the train and goes back to literal hell. Um, there's also a comment somewhere in the book, too, where he's like, Hogwarts is more of a home to me than the Dursleys has ever been in the 11 years I was there. You're like, that's so heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, I... This, ah. Once, yeah, I think this actually might be, this might be a good, like, transition into themes if we, if we want to talk about, like, more of the family thing. There is, there is a lot that they touch on about, like, who your family is born with and, like, like who you're born with and then who you make and, like, the difference between, like, the family that, like, br- like raises you and the family that you choose and, like, your friends. Mm-hmm. And I really, I like the message and uh, I'll get more in, or we can both get more into, like, why the, that is strong in this book but i do wish in some mm. ways that it was stronger like i would have liked if there was a little bit more more i mean not for harry of course but i would have liked if there was a little more coercion like shown in of like them trying to bring him back uh like to like to the dursleys like because i feel like there, sh- there would be a lot more 
um, pushback at the very least from Harry on that kind yeah. of stuff. Like, like they, if this is the golden, if this is like the Wizarding World's golden boy, like that they talk about, like this quote unquote chosen one, then like I feel there should be a lot more sway with like he's like actually can i just like get a hotel room he certainly had enough galleons for it yeah and and we see the only person that ever seems to say anything about the dursleys is molly weasley um and she really doesn't say anything directly she just goes up and tries to inter- introduce herself to the dursleys and they just disregard her mm-hmm. and it's just so and like you said there's no resistance from harry going back to the dursleys he's just like well, I know I gotta go back. I don't have anywhere else to go. And maybe that's his, like, you know, little 11-year-old mind. But it's just so heartbreaking. It could, also, it could also be chalked up to, like, what happens in a lot of abuse victims. They feel that there isn't somewhere else to go. And they go, mm-hmm. well, it sucks, but it's not – I mean, it's, it's nothing I can do. And that does get – throughout the series, it does get broken down. For instance, there is, mm-hmm. uh, like, the second book – he sneaks out instead of like i don't think in the first book he would have dreamed about sneaking out really yeah but the i believe it's the second one right where he snuck away in the car that's uh, yeah, book that's, two? That's, okay. yeah that's book two and then book three he just straight up runs away yeah like there there is a there is a lot of pushback throughout the rest of the novel that i think is it, it that is built up in this book and i think it's mm-hmm. really important i think it's really i don't know i like it a lot we see, and I, this is another thing we can talk about when we get deeper into themes, too, is there's a sense of rebellion that Harry slowly starts to adapt. You know, we see it in, in, in the first couple of chapters where he just kind of wants to fight the Dursleys. Um, he's very upset with them, but he knows that there's nothing that he can do. He's just stuck with it. He, he's dealt the shorthand, of this, you know, the shorthand at the card's life. And there's nothing he can do. Um, but as the book goes on, of course, we learn that Harry's like, you know what, no, I, I can rebel. There are little things I can do that are, you know, worth risking everything for. Um, and we can, like I said, we'll touch on that a little bit in the difference in rebellion. Um, but real quick, I think I want to talk uh, technicalities uh, of the book. Um, <laughs> both of us are, are pretty big writing people, I'd like to say. <laughs> yeah. um, and J.K. Rowling does an interesting thing with her third person point of view so it's kind of, i don't know whether to describe her point of view as a third person omniscient or third person limited because we're not introduced to any of the feelings going through the characters minds but sometimes we are yeah i i i think that i really think the it's I, it's very prominent in the points that you pointed out like for instance in the quidditch match uh, for like the first bit where Harry's not even present, we don't know who the perspective is from, and it's certainly not Harry, it's not Ron or Hermione, um, it's it's very segmented. Um, the beginning of the book obviously starts with Dursley point, or Dursley's, yeah, Dursley's point of view, um, and then transitions into, you know, actually now that I think about this, after it transitions from Dursley, it could still be from Harry, albeit like baby harry baby harry who should have no concept of what no, these people are saying no, around him. definitely no concept but if we i and i think i'm still in the camp of third person omniscient but i think that the narrator is floating above harry and saying what is yeah. happening it's, you know it's, i can 
it is always yeah. still very centric around Harry. It never like leaves too far, but it's not always directly hovering over him. And I don't know exactly where to classify that. Omniscient is the only place that really makes sense to me. And that's still like a very like amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I kinda almost think of it like a like a like a drone is flying over and it has the camera focused on Harry, but it, you were also seeing the things that are happening around Harry that pertain to him. Yeah. Um and okay, so there's a very interesting thing that I picked up on uh the very the first literally the first four words of chapter sixteen. Um it says in years to come. Um, Harry would never quite remember how he managed to get through his final exams. Of course, this is this is a pa- you know it's set in past tense, but that gives us a very removed narrator. That yeah. sets us up for a very removed narrator that I don't think is actively present in the novel. Um, and it just it threw me. Um, it was very like it, like I mm-hmm. physically had to stop and go wait a second what. Um, it affected how I reread it after I went back and like skimmed through it again after reading that. And I was like, man, that is so removed. And we do see a, now we do see some big time, you know, we see a big time jump uh, with the first chapter being when Harry is a year old. And you know, of course the second chapter picking up when he is 10, getting ready to turn 11. Yeah, And it's, it's just so jarring. I, I would say oh. it's, it's almost, it does give off a tone sometimes as if it's being told by a specific character like someone who is who is close to harry is like it's like them telling the story of harry potter it feels that way sometimes and i don't yeah. know who that would be like with all the knowledge of the books i don't know who that would be maybe like yeah. I, I think i read a theory of like a couple of years ago on something that was like it was it was supposed to be like james telling lily uh like through like the like resurrection stone-esque ghosts or whatever but i think that's just i don't know it's a stretch and i feel that it's <laughs> yeah. just very strange it's a very strange choice that feels like like it's somebody outside of our comprehension but yet it's yeah it's still super close and i think i think this is an important idea to keep and keep thinking about reading through the series from here on out like of course mm-hmm. like when we go to do our reread of books two through seven is that going to continue this like overarching omniscience but also a very direct character telling us a story and it's just maybe but was there anything else technically that you wanted to um not really there is i would like to address just uh briefly at the very least that um jk rowling's uh like uh, sorry i (laughs) my mouth died there um (laughs) something i wanted to address was that J.K. Rowling's sort of style is not mm-hmm. akin to, at the very least, what I've been reading recently. So it was a little bit of like sort of a, not step back, but it like took me a second to adjust to. Her wording is not very flowery. It's very direct. Like when she says something, there's usually not too many, too much certain terms. The foreshadowing mm-hmm. at the very least on a second read is pretty like, like blatant and out there. But I think that helps for a world that is not very black and white sometimes. Like yeah. when, when you were talking about a wizarding world uh, of all this like magic and uh, like, I don't want to say nonsense, but like all these like mystical things around you and mm-hmm. we don't know anything. It's useful to have a character such as Harry that also doesn't know anything. Um, yeah. And that isn't being given 
a lecture. Like I like the the book sometimes feels like it could benefit from like a chapter, maybe less of like telling us what is happening and like some of the history. But the other thing is that would be very boring. And I yeah. think that her certain terms of being like, this is how this goes. There is, these are these candies. And like throwing them out there without making us like wonder about things benefits to the series. Like this, it's, it, it sort of goes uh, to show that like tone, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like as literarily important, can be important to storytelling, even if it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to have a lot of merit behind it at first. And I think that's very good. It's also important to consider that this is, this was originally written for children and you don't want to sit them down with your thesis on like magical (laughs) theory. Right. Like I, I, you don't want to roll up with your 300 page (laughs) rhetorical essay on the theory behind the magical realm. Um, And I agree. Of course, uh, J.K. Rowling has a very unique writing style Um, and it's obviously her strength because if you've read any of her other works, even um, her kind of, attempt at other like other styles of writing within the harry potter universe they fall flat Uh um she does a really great job of developing her world in her writing um even if there are some there's a couple places that i'm like okay um yeah some some things that feel like they weren't quite fleshed out uh, yeah. she felt like she was going to come back to later but never did mm-hmm. yeah but i think and those are those are few enough that i don't have as much problems with them honestly i'm going to be completely honest the biggest problem i have with this seer with this book sing- like just sorcerer's stone is the red herring of snape and she, she will see it again and again in multiple in multiple novels um she sets snape up to be the bad guy of course mm-hmm but there is no, you know, the, the, the reasoning behind why he might, you know, we have Quirrell's kind of, you know, villain speech there at the end where he's like, oh, Snape would never kill you. He might hate you, but he won't kill you. It just, it falls flat in my mind. She doesn't give us enough evidence that Quirrell is the one as well. There is yeah. not enough of this, like, first off, we don't see Quirrell. We meet him in the beginning. And we do not see him again until the troll in the dungeon scene. And then he vanishes until the end for the most part. Yeah. I mean, it's, I it, there's, like... a, there's a brief, like, talk, there's a brief talking point in the, uh, I think it's the Potion Master chapter, where it's, it talks about, like, oh, he smells funny, and he has a big turbidon that smells funny, too. Like, it's like, it's like very yeah. small things whenever they talk about it. And, not to, like, uh, and... interject too much. And she just, like, I don't know, there, I just have a big problem with, it is very misleading. There is not, in my mind, there's not t- enough textual evidence that Snape isn't the villain for her to just throw. There's a difference between setting up a proper red herring and a proper, you know, a curveball. That is a curveball thrown sideways. Like, there is no, she starts yeah. to hint at it a little bit towards the end, but I don't know. I, that's, that's, only, my... that's only once you already have suspicions the other way. Like, it is... Yeah, it is something that there. There is something to be said about twists in books, whether you love them or hate them. They can be done well and they can be done poorly. And I think, and, in my in my opinion, the best way to do a twist is when you can guess it, but it's not always the most obvious thing. Like I'm not talking about like, like uh, I like I don't not to bring up like a movie into this, but like Big Hero Six and like a lot of like Disney movies from that era have mm-hmm. sort of villains that are like 
remember this guy? He was the like John Johnson. He owned the company at the very beginning and then never had any screen time until right now. Are you surprised? It's like, I'm that's, not surprised because I don't know who he is. And that's how I feel about Professor Quirrell. We are not, we have such amazing character development for Snape. We are dropped into his world so well. He is set up well enough in the text. We know nothing about Quirrell until he villain-splains. Yeah, it's... Um, it just, it fall it, that twist falls flat in my mind. And, but we see that J.K. Rowling does, we'll see in next week's episode, that she does that well in the second book. Personally, I'm a huge fan of, of the, of the Gilderoy Lockhart plotline, because it is done well. I just think she fell flat on Quirrell. Yes, I... And there was room. <laughs> But I, I and I think the only reason the only reason she's able to do that, I think though, and like I'm not trying to defend the the quarrel thing here, but I think the only reason she's able to do that is because you are like, okay, it's gonna be another thing of like this teachers da 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 and she still does that. It's but instead of him being a villain, it's him being like a coward and like a a glory stealer. Um, yeah. And and like it, it sets you up to believe that it's gonna happen again. Uh, and we're gonna think, uh oh, it's Snape again. But like, I, I think it's she's only able to achieve achieve the success that she gets in the Chamber of Secrets because of how she handled uh, the Sorcerer Stone, mm-hmm. like in Quarrel. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and we'll fall into themes now. Um, so, of course, um, the main themes in the novel that we see throughout. Um, follow, of course, it's desire, humility, rebellion, um, with some solid motifs of, um, you know, of the points, authority, and the muggles. Um, so I just kind of want to jump in. Authority, in my mind, was the biggest motif that I could pull throughout the text. Um, it is a constant battle of authority throughout the entire story. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, but we see different types of authority. And I kind of, that's kind of what I want to talk about. So we see, of course, the Dursley's authority in the beginning over Harry. It is a very abusive authority. It is a very dictator authority. Um, and we see that it's a very fragile authority. Um, because we see when, when Haggard busts in, the Dursleys are attempting, they are on the last straw of trying to keep authority Vernon Dursley is losing ground. He does not know how to pick it back up after the fiasco of the letters. And we just see him after Hagrid and after they, you know, after Hagrid pops in, we see Vernon just kind of lose his grounds of authority. He just stops being able to, you know, to bully Harry. Which leads to this gross, kind of like what we touched on earlier, of, of Vernon trying so hard to still have control over Harry, that he's just, it's the worst. Um, yeah. I don't know how else to put it. I don't know. He has a very, Vernon's authority is a very egotistical one. Yeah, he believes he is the, uh, he is like the sole, like, man of the house, if that's the right word there. He, mm-hmm. he believes he is fully in charge, or should be at the very least, fully in charge of his household. And he was, he was pretty confident in that, like, when he had Dursley, and he had, like, what looked to be, like, his entire life set in front of him. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And like he had everything planned to the note. And then Harry is dropped on his doorstep and he doesn't know what to do. And to hold on to the thing that he had, he said, I'm going to put him as far out of my mind as ever, as at any time. This, that honestly, the way he treats Harry kind of uh, can be like portrayed or at least parallel to when he's driving away in like the very first scene uh, and leaving a uh, private drive. He, he's like looking at all this. He's like, oh, look at this weird magic stuff. Like look at all these people in robes. Um, oh well, I'm gonna go start thinking about drills now. And he like he tries to push everything that is not mm-hmm. immediately like controllable or like known to him away from him into in back into the mundane. And he does the same with Harry and even to Harry, like forcing him to still be somewhat normal. And I think he he does his authority is derived purpose uh, solely from putting Harry down. He is able to re- to remain in charge by making Harry feel small. Um, and we see that right there, of course, after after Hagrid returns Harry to the Dursleys after being at Diagon Alley. Uh, the, they just ignore him. Yeah, They it's... don't talk to him. They don't interact with him. Um, he gets fed. He, he doesn't even go downstairs. He gets food left at his door. And it's just so, the fact that the moment Vernon's authority is challenged, the only thing he can think to do is just continue to belittle this poor boy. And like the scene we talked about earlier of him driving away, leaving this child in London alone. And he kind of, he also, we also see his authority a little bit too in the fact that he, um, you know, Harry gets up the courage and asks him, hey, um, can you take me on September 1st to the Hogwarts, you know, to, to King's Cross so I can get on the train and never come back? And he's like, don't, you know, and he's like, well, uh, all right, we'll take you to King's Cross, uh, but that's only because we're going to London anyway. If not, I wouldn't have bothered. And making Harry feel like he has no importance or significance to him is Vernon's way of keeping authority, I think. Yeah, I, I think, I, I agree. That. And it's, it's like this sort of controlling thing is obviously bad. That's what the book points, uh, points it out to be. Uh, and this pretty, is pretty, like, I don't want to say foiled, but I think foiled to how mm-hmm. Molly is reacting. Like, she is, mm-hmm. they, Dursley, basically for all intents and purposes, was a one-child family. Like, Harry was not really treated as a child. He was treated as the help, almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, Molly filled, uh, uh, her house is filled with children of, like, various um, Weasleys. And she has nothing but compassion for them. She does not treat one, she does not really treat anything sort of as out of, not even out of the ordinary, but like out of her plan or something. Like when something, mm-hmm. like even with their, the design of their house sort of shows, this where it's like, it doesn't look like anything has been planned. It's just when things happen, they happen. They have different add-ons like, uh-oh, they need a new kid. Uh, so we're going to put space here. And it's it's all very chaotic or an eclectic but not necessarily in a bad way and it's it's sort of the instant realization to harry about all this is like oh okay this is 
different and it's 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 a very harsh like zap that there is more than just one type of authority mm -hmm. that like has to be the way it's controlled and we see this too and we'll see this a little bit more in next week's discussion of how molly still obtain like she still has an authoritative ground with her kids despite not bullying them <laughs> She is stern with her kids, but she is not mean. To, she does not abuse her children. Mm -hmm. But yet, they still respect her. You know, Ron is so afraid of crossing his mother, which, like I said, we'll see later. But, but she's not, you know, bullying them. And I think that's, a very, that's very similar to the type of authority that McGonagall has. Mm -hmm. um, and we see her let loose a little bit, of course. But McGonagall just has this very controlling air about her. Like Harry straight up says, "Do not cross McGonagall." It is. It is more for. It is not fear for punishment for them. It is fear of uh, McGonagall is a little different. There is like detention and stuff, but like at the very least, for like for Ron's case, when he's talking to his mother, it is fear of disappointment. Mm -hmm. Not a. It is not like carrot in the stick exactly. Uh, whereas. Honestly, Vernon is more stick and more stick, really. Mm -hmm. Well, and well, even McGonagall too, because there is the scene after the um, the troll in the dungeon when Hermione tells her, "Professor, it was my fault that that they were here. I was stupid. I tried to do this." And McGonagall just goes, "You could have been hurt. I'm so disappointed." Mm -hmm. She's not upset. She's just disappointed that her students thought, you know, they, to put their life in the line for something that wasn't huge, you know? Mm -hmm. And we see, see it again, too, that word disappointment comes up um, from McGonagall when she finds all of them out of bed at the duel. Or not the duel, but the, um, when they're dropping off the dragon. Yes. Which we didn't even touch on. <laughs> There's a <laughs> whole other Hagrid bumble. Yeah. Um, but when she finds Harry, Hermione, and Neville out of bed, she just goes, I'm so disappointed. Three Gryffindor students out of bed at night at the same time. And it's just like they have, and we see that continued, that McGonagall's authority is this one that, like, yeah, she does have some, like, stakes in the points and stuff, but they just don't want to disappoint her. Whereas they have Snape, who falls under the Dursley line of things. With his gross, his only means of authority is by putting other students down. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it like, it sort of touches on, like, obviously a lot of the teachers are embodiments of the houses that they are primarily, they primarily, like, mm -hmm. belong to. So Snape is a lot more sort of sinister, where McGonagall is a lot more sort of, like, bold and, like, in herself sort of uh, style. Mm -hmm. And I think that I think that's that's nice to see like the different it's not exactly power dynamics but the way that like the the houses reflect them and i, I think mm -hmm. that that is important when considering like how the different power structures come and where they come from and which characters they apply to mm, speaking of that quick change it um when talking about the houses the first half of this book just craps on hufflepuff yeah it's it's weird it's like it's like there's the smart ones, the, the conniving ones, the brave ones, and the rest. Yeah, and I'm just like, 
you know, they constantly make this, like, the comment, like, at, Harry has this conversation with, with Hagrid and with Ron about the different houses. And, you know, Hagrid's like, ah, there ain't a witch or wizard who went bad that wasn't in Slytherin. And then they're like, yeah, but I'd rather be in Slither than Hufflepuff. Ah, oh, those losers. It just made me so upset. I was like, oh my gosh. And yeah, me. I just, oh my gosh. It's so, it makes me so upset. Like, no, oh, don't. But that kind of goes into the, the, the prejudice of things as well. Um, which is one of the themes, of course, um, like I said earlier, was not necessarily a theme. It's just more of a uh, kind of scene throughout is this like dis disagreement amongst different groups? Um, so of course we see the wizards looking down on the wiz on the on the muggles, and we see the muggles looking down on the wizards, um, and then of course we can dive into the blood status and the wealth, but we see it in between the houses. Um, and the houses, if if I can interject here, the houses like it's really weird because they're set up like all of these other things are shown as issues. The, like the discussion between the muggles and the uh, and the like wizards uh, and like the different blood statuses, but the houses aren't really shown as like they they are like set up to be sort of like oh this is another uh, example of like prejudice or whatever and like this uh, like there's never been a bad wizard that comes from these things, but it, like the way that it's set up and dealt with isn't that way. Like for instance, the houses are sorted by personality. Uh, and like mm -hmm. by how you act and like how you would react in such situations. So the way that Rowling sort of portrays the houses almost makes it feel like, oh, well, yeah, that's true because it's, it's not prejudice because that is just, this is just a group of people that think this way. So they're all going to think similarly. And mm -hmm. the way it's, I think, I just think that the way it's set up makes it almost as if J.K. Rowling is saying, this is prejudice, but it's okay because of it, it's based on these specific things. Yeah. As, as well as, later in the book like they they say like oh there's never been there there's never been a a wizard that went bad that wasn't in slytherin uh and it's like set up like in azkaban it's supposed to be like oh Sirius black look he was a gryffindor but he went bad and it's like oh maybe there's more than just that it turns out he is innocent and like while i appreciate that Sirius is innocent in the long run it is like that was one of the few arrows in our quiver to say that not every person that is bad is in Slytherin but they take that away from us like then we have well, Peter Pettigrew we have Peter yeah. Pettigrew I, I feel like I, I just feel like the houses in general are prejudiced but JK Rowling doesn't treat it like that I would like to say this too um in reread and this reread hit me more than anything Ron and Hermione should not have been Gryffindors no nor Neville granted Neville does have a couple amazing like little like stand-up scenes but, like, no, like, none of them should have been, Her Hermione, you know, absolutely panics in the face of any sort of danger. Now, granted, her bravery shows more in her willingness to put herself out there. Mm -hmm. Hermione should have been a Ravenclaw. There was, it, yeah. Ron should not have been a Gryffindor. Um, and, and not as much in this book. I mean, I think Harry's about the only one that might have stayed in, you know, could have continued being Gryffindor and I'd been like yeah okay I see it see, of course in later series it kind of shifts yeah. but like that's that's what I've never that's what I've never understood about the the series like when I was reading this I was like it really would have been cool if Harry just found two friends that were in 
two different houses and it was like three houses came together and then later when draco malfoy like maybe if he, she changed it to be like draco malfoy has like a bit of like a a turn to like the face instead of the heel um he becomes like the fourth Ooh. and final like a member of the friend group making up one four of each house's also yeah. like alluding back to the four founding house members like that's what it feels like the book should have gone but instead it is everyone is a ravenclaw or sorry everyone is a gryffindor <laughs> and if they are not they are a side character like it's it's, it's really it's strange very, yeah and well because we don't get a main character who isn't a gryffindor with the exception of malfoy is the villain until mm. luna in the fifth novel yeah and then um, even even then she is relentlessly mocked and yeah, she's and also made so... out to be a character that is like, it's like, oh, she's not always crazy. Like, that's that's the most redemption we get on, like, people, it's like, haha, you're crazy. And all we get is, oh, no, she was right about this one thing. And it's like, that's, yeah. it feels, it feels shallow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, like, I don't know, I just, I have so many, rereading yeah. this, I was like, and I, the only thing I can think of is Gryffindors have the bravery to ask the hat what they want. Yeah. Because um, you have, I mean, we hear Harry tell the hat anything with Slytherin. And assumedly, we have Ron would be like, Gryffindor, I need, you know, let me be in Gryffindor. My family's been in Gryffindor. I have to be in Gryffindor. Hermione was let into Gryffindor because she was taking too much time to deliberate in her head which house she wanted most. Yeah, like, I just, uh, I don't it's, know. And that's, is, that's the only thing I could think of that would be the separation of houses. There was something, there was something I, I did notice that almost felt like the sorting hat itself was, like, biased, which was the fact that there are five boys and five girls that were added this year for each house. It's like, mm-hmm. that seemed a little, like, do you think there's, like, a cap? And it's like, ah, oh, shoot, we already have five Ravenclaw girls, but we now we got this Hermione chick. Fine, we just got to add her to Gryffindor or whatever, like, yeah. It's almost as if Gryffindor was the overflow, it felt like. Rather than yeah. like Hufflepuff, which seemed almost like the overflow. Hmm. Maybe? I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's something we can touch on more as we reread. Like I said, yeah. I've, got, I've got all this stuff that I'm thinking maybe fits in, maybe fits in, but I'm not going to yeah. truly know <laughs> until we get deeper in. Uh, um, is there anything yeah. else on this theme that we want to touch on or before we leave um, the houses? There is the conversation about desire. Um, of course, like, there is an entire element, symbol here, in the Mirror of Erised, that kind of makes the comment of desire. And there's a line from Dumbledore that, you know, he talks about the fact that desire can make you go crazy. And I, I kind of want to talk about how Harry's desires differ from Ron's and yeah. from the Mirror's final use. And I think, uh, first off, it goes right back to the heartbreaking nature of the fact that here's Harry, who only knows these awful people that he is related to. He has no family um, until he comes to Hogwarts and kind of makes a family with the Weasleys. Um, But we see him in the Mirror of Erised, the thing he desires most is to know his family. Mm -hmm. And we don't just see his parents. We see his grandparents and his aunts and uncles on his dad's side, or, you know, like, distant relatives on his dad's side of the family he sees you know oh this there's one scene where he's like this man has the same knobby knees that i do or you know and Mm -hmm. he there's this beautiful moment of him just kind of realizing that he has family 
that have just gone on, you know? And then, of course, we see Ron, who we already have established comes from a ginormous family, just want to be the best kid. He, he wants to be head boy. He's holding the Quidditch, you know, cup. He's holding the house cup. He has done everything all of his brothers have done, but better. And it's just so... I don't, the, yet again, they foil each other out. Yeah, and it's 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 very it's very intriguing. Like what different people saw in the mirror as well, because like like you said, those two saw what the what the other had basically that uh, but they didn't. Um, and I think even the the not puzzle, but like the final trial to get to the stone was you had to look in the mirror and want the stone, but not want to use it. I think is very like important because like that is a caveat that I I think was important because obviously you can't just have it like if you want it then Voldemort can have it it's it can't just be if you don't want it then then any average Joe that like put it on like needs that but it shows that like the sort of desires don't always have to be for yourself in Harry's mm-hmm. case in the final end it is he desires to keep everything safe from the evils at, like keep the evils at bay that are like pursuing mm-hmm. Uh, and he like just feels it in his pocket, and I think that there is there is also sort of uh, something to say about that. Um, Dumbledore decides to destroy it, um, and when he decides to destroy it, it is not only like it is doing the ultimate goal of what Harry desired. It was keeping this uh, artifact away from evil at all costs, and mm-hmm. it is it is almost as if the mirror sort of amplified his desires later and i think it's i think that's a very nice sort of bow on that whole situation absolutely um so we see rebellion kind of on a smaller scale throughout the series or throughout this book specifically um we see ron and harry's rebellions against the rules um of course harry's rebellion against the dursleys little by little but the one character that we see start to rebel is Hermione. Very minusculely, she starts to kind of go lax on the rules and kind of get the nerve to begin to act out. Um, Of course, not dramatically, because she's still, like, top student and, you know, the best in the game. But we see her kind of start to not care about the rules. She sneaks out at night with the boys. Um, She voluntarily, you know, jumps in headfirst to, to find the Sorcerer's Stone. She lights a professor on fire. (laughs) Like, in even, I don't know, just on the smaller scale of rebellions. It's just so sweet. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very, it's very nice to see that sort of character growth. And it's, it's not always, because she is, she's, she's bookish and she's like enraptured by this world. Because like, uh, and I think it's nice that it's like, oh, it's, it's growth, but it's not the, it's not the growth that a lot of books or stories go of. It's like, oh, it's just like, uh, a nerdy little like bookish kid. Now they got to break out of their shell. It's not that she was breaking out of her shell. It's that she was being. She was like opening up. She was widening it, uh, widening her shell a little bit. She's she was still... growing into it. Yes, that's thank you. Yes. <laughs> um. We yeah, and I think I don't know. Hermione is just such a an amazing character too. Yeah. Just this whole like I said. I mean, we just see her. Just begin. This is the beginning of her, and kind of like what you're saying too, in the fact that she doesn't disregard her like, you know, bookish ways. She just adds to the rebellion of it as well. You know, she doesn't. She doesn't completely change who she is, 
um, just because she now wants to break the rules sometimes. Like, no, she's still a stellar student who talks all she wants. She is but... just now, yeah, she is, she <laughs> is just now. She's now going to light a professor on fire. Yeah, she is, she's more open and more flexible. And that yeah. rubs off on, like, both, both of the other boys in, uh, in mm-hmm. the group. It is, they go, they stay more structured and they stay more open to the possibilities of you don't always have to break away from things. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and another thing. So there, <laughs> I for- completely forgot to touch on this earlier. There is a scene uh, at the second Quidditch match where Ron and Neville get in a fight with Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle. Mm-hmm. So, and this is part of the reason I also think Ron should have been a Hufflepuff. Um, we see Malfoy yet again bullying Ron for his family and his family being poor and, you know, all this. And Ron just snaps, hops over the bench, starts beating up Malfoy. The Neville hesitates and then does, you know, joins him. Yeah. Neville, this backwards poor little boy, just hurdles the seats to beat the hell out of them. It's just <laughs> so satisfying. Because the series, or the, the scene is, of, cur- of course, set up by uh, Malfoy being mean to Neville and him going, I'm worth 12 of you, Malfoy, which is what Harry had said to him earlier. And then, you know, Malfoy just keep pushing and pushing and they both snap. And of course, we see at the end, the end of the game, you know, Ron's cheering for Harry despite blood pouring out of his nose. So good. So good. Um, <laughs> that was a complete tangent. But we can go ahead and throw into, uh, let's go ahead and start talking about characters themselves. I think, um, <laughs> as much as I think we, we could start with Harry, we kind of already touched on a lot of Hermione's mm-hmm. things, so I think it might be good to just jump in onto her. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, 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 I know, I like Hermione a lot as a character, and I feel that there's something that a lot of people kind of either neglect or don't really think about like this is this is imagine if you found out that you were you just had a normal completely like average life and then you found out hey you can learn magic now uh you would be so eager to learn about how to use this magic that you have just unlocked so that's and that's what she does she studies and she brings about things and she tries to be the best she can at this sort of like new magical world that she's adopting herself in and she even even though she's a bit like stuck up about like what she has she still does try to show other people to sort of share this like knowledge with them and she is bullied for it even by even by people that had similar upbringings to her where they didn't understand magic existed until now and like they i feel like somebody who is uh like born of muggles would be the first people to jump into like the sort of deep end about that stuff it's like they would join her but yet it's not and i think that's important to know about her character along with what we said like she opens up through this magical world and what they've learned i think too it's important to note that hermione seems to be so afraid of being left like in the dust yeah yeah which and so we see that of course like we talked about earlier in the practical sense she is left behind um when with the whole troll situation and she freezes up during um the double snare scene as well or yeah double snare stuff where she she panics she's like we have to light a fire but we don't have any wood you know but at the same time she is the smartest kid in the class because she is so afraid of somebody being able to do like okay like what 
Snape does to Harry in that first scene of potions class mm -hmm. where he he's catching Harry off off guard with questions that nobody should know the answer to. Hermione is definitely going to make sure that that's not her. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very I think that's the biggest piece of her character. Um, and I think we'll see later on in the series too that after after the troll scene and a after the end of this book, Hermione is no longer caught off guard by any situation. Yeah, she's um, almost nearly always prepared. <laughs> exactly. And I think that that is the biggest point of her character, I think. I, I also want to touch on Malfoy. Um, I know I've done a lot of like Malfoy's the worst, but we also have to remember his family, which we learn a lot more about in the next book. Yes. Um, but there's, there's the scene of when Harry runs into him in Diagon Alley. And Malfoy does not ask Harry's name. He asks Harry's surname. Yeah. Um, which I think is super important to Malfoy's character. Um, this boy, who is 11 years old, does not ask, hi, what's your name? No, he goes, who's your family? Yeah. Like, who do you know? He's, he's kind of already set up the blood purity thing as well right there. You know, he just goes, uh, where are your parents? And Harry goes, oh, they're dead. He's like, oh, sorry. But they were like our kind, weren't they? They were a witch and a wizard, if that's what you mean. And then, and then Malfoy just starts on this, like, I really don't think they should let others, the other sort in, do you? Uh, they're just not the same. Uh, they've never been brought up to know our ways. Some of them have never even heard of Hogwarts until the letter. Um, I think they should keep it to old wizarding families. What's your surname? Yeah, and like it's, a, it, oh, so there. There's a lot there, and he's 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 a little. I don't know how to still say. He's a little brat, and there's, uh, and he's so in, indoctrinated into his family. He is the, and at the very least, it's portrayed at first. We know it's not exactly the case, but he is sort of the Dudley again. He mm -hmm. like like we already compared. Like this guy is worse than Dudley. This is Dudley if he had no other, like, person to not really compete to because he wasn't really competing against Harry, but, like, no other rival in sort of things. He was completely indoctrinated into what he believes. Uh, he doesn't think any other ways about it until substantial things happen and change in his life. Well, and I think it's important to note, too, that it's about the prejudice. Um, in the same sense of, like, of Dudley is very he was raised in it to be very prejudiced against Harry um, for being a wizard. The same way that Draco is very, very prejudiced towards, towards, you know, muggle-borns and people like Harry who weren't raised in the wizarding world. And it's also, I think it's also important to note, we only get Draco's name like once, like first name once or twice in the first book. He is always referred to as Malfoy. His friends are always referred, referred to as Crab and Goyle. He never refers to anybody by first name. It is surname only. Um, we see it with the Weasleys. He mocks Ron by constantly and just refers to him as Weasley. Um, and when, when, he when Malfoy introduces himself, he says, and my name's Malfoy, Draco Malfoy. Not, hi, my name's Draco Malfoy. No, it is Malfoy first. Um, and I just think that kind of hypes his import, like his self self-serving agenda he wants to make himself known he wants to make yeah. others know like what's important to him like where he stands just all by just in interjecting his family first mm -hmm. and it's just it just continues to set him up as this you know 
the, the archetype villain. And um, there's, I think there's something to be said as well towards um, he is, his family is well known and that's why they sort of, that's why he sort of puts it out there so much. And it is, it's, it's very similar to like, Harry is famous, but never knew he was and never knew his parents were like, like known across the wizarding world. Draco has known that and it shows mm-hmm. the difference in those like sort of attitudes of being raised like oh yeah i i know this and it's gone to my head uh, also mm-hmm. like i said earlier there are things we learn later that's that's not the entire case but that is what it is painted in the first book mm-hmm. and another character we kind of see that that is very well ingrained in the wizarding world but yet still outcast is neville um Neville is painted as this very, you know, very backward, very shy boy who can't do anything right. He remembers, uh, he can't ever remember the tool that he uses to not remember things, uh, yeah. to uh, forget things rather. Uh, he is, he is shown like very early, basically from the beginning to kind of be bumbling, like was one of his mm-hmm. few personality traits, but he was still in Gryffindor as opposed to something like Hufflepuff. Uh, and it, it paints it not as not as like, why did you get in? But like, it, it paints it as sort of like, you don't think much of him other than just like, kind of a little a little klutzy. Um, and later, you get a lot more on him, albeit like not as much as like a lot of the characters, but like, you get that he has his moments of bravery. Uh, and mm-hmm. if the Sorting Hat does what like, like what we think it does and like sort of like just ask questions and probe the minds and like see what they would most likely do in situations that was certainly one of the things that came up he basically gets the winning points for uh the gryffindor because he stood up for his friends or he stood up mm-hmm. against his friends which is i believe that said like one of the biggest acts of courage you can have oh yeah i mean i would agree like i know i mean personally i don't know that i could have the bravery it would take to stand up to my friends in a situation like that and and kind of like what you're saying like neville is known as the bumbling kid and he's set up to be as such um so of course it, some of the first times we meet neville is him chasing his frog um, very rarely is Neville seen without his frog. And earlier in the in the book, in Di- in the chapter about Diagon Alley, uh, Hagrid and Harry are talking about pets, and it comes up. You know, the Harry's like an owl. Like, oh my gosh, all these creatures. Like, what? And Hagrid goes, Oh yeah, you know, a lot of people bring owls. They're very useful. Um, Nobody brings toads. Toads are so out of fashion. You know, how, oh, how weird it would be to have a toad. Like, you just, that's just so lame. And then, of course, we see Neville with the toad. Uh, The first scene we have of Neville is with his toad. And we also see Neville crying. I think he cries more than almost any other character. I think in that's this fair to say. First book, and it's so ups- like they're just trying to paint him as this very, I don't know. But it, yeah, it's I, it's sort of he he is, in a sense, the comic relief of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does have his own sort of like things and goals that he is trying to. Not, I guess not goals, but he does have like things that he is standing for and things that he mm-hmm. believes in. And I think it is, it's important to talk about him as the series grows as the series grows because there is i don't think there's a single book that passes by that doesn't 
build on at least a little bit on his character. Mm-hmm. And I could be misremembering, but I'm pretty sure he, there's at least something that helps him. I think the the biggest changes are like in four and seven um, for him. And we, yeah. And I mean, even in the span of this first novel, we see him grow as a character. We see him go from, like I said, boy straight up hurdled the seat to beat the crap. He took on two guys, like twice his size, all because, you know, it's time to stand up for himself kind of thing, you know? Because mm-hmm. we've seen, because of course, in that scene, Ron takes on Draco and Neville just hops in straight up on Crab and Goyle. And I think after we meet Neville as this like very backward, very like bubbling, bumbling kind of guy, by the end of the book, we see he's still very kind of like in Hermione's sense too. Um, in the same way that Hermione kind of grows into the rebellion, Neville grows into standing up to up for <laughs> himself. It is it, his, yeah. His character is never about getting rid of this personality trait that has only been a hindrance to him. It is learning to like come to terms with it. it there, are, there are a few times in the book where at least the main characters are shown as this is something that's bad that they need to overcome. It is this is how they see these traits that are present in a lot of kids and grow to both love them and play with them and get rid of some of the more toxic traits of them. And I think it's also about, I mean, it's, it is a statement for, you know, growing up yourself, you know, mm-hmm. like even now, like there are plenty of things that I do my personality wise that I know I don't want to change about myself, but there's definitely ways that I could, you know, make that a, a, a better, you know, <laughs> like I, I would never want to give up the fact, you know, oh, I don't know. I kind of think of it in the same sense as like, so I have, I I have a learning disability. I'm dyslexic. And I think of it as going through school. I didn't, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that I, I am successful despite my learning disability. But at the same time, I would never, you know, I would never like, oh no, I'm, you know, pretend it doesn't exist. But growing up was learning how to work around it, you know, finding tips and tricks to get around it. And I think it's the same thing for parts of your personality. You know, it's not about abandoning part of your identity. It's just about growing into it. So that's a very (laughs) flowery way of saying it. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other characters I kind of want to talk about. Yet again, I could gush about Molly Weasley for hours. Um, I love her so much. Um, and of course, like we could talk about Snape uh, just being bad. Um, and the fact that he truly hates Harry. And it's just so, and we can get into that when we talk about other books too, because we'll see mm-hmm. that more in depth later in the series. I think it's book six when we really get into like, Snape's got some stuff going on upstairs that he's projecting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think. I think that's pretty much, unless there's any other characters you want to talk about. Um, no, nothing, nothing really that comes to mind. <laughs> we like, have been bubbling for a while. Yeah, we, we've, we've, we've covered all the main guys and anything, <laughs> anything else would di- delve, I think, too much into later books. Mm-hmm. Like we could be like Snape or this character or Dumbledore, but like we can't yeah. get a word in edgewise about Dumbledore without talking about the rest of the book. Like there's nothing we can yeah. get in there. Now, there is an important thing to note about Dumbledore before we sign off here, too, though, is that um, we didn't really touch on it talking about authority, but D- Dumbledore has this very mystical authority, which is very true to his character. 
Um, he's very distant. Um, but when he is, you know, up close and personal, it is for a very specific reason. Um, and we see kind of Dumbledore begin to build this relationship with Harry that, of course, like you said, gets do like dove into later on. Um, but I think it's important to note that, Harry, that Dumbledore keeps everybody at an arm's length. You know, it, mm -hmm. even in this first novel, we see he stays distant. He's not involved in any of the conflict. The only person we see him talking to directly outside of McGonagall is Harry. Yeah, and I think it's I think that's that's important to note that, uh, like you said, is it gets touched on a lot more. But it is it's an important part of his character in like how he was the, how he was like raised and how how his like sort of uh, power like styles of authority like go. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's I think that's nice to touch on real quick before we. <laughs> yeah, because and I think we'll see a lot more of that as the series goes on. So, but with that, I think. Maybe we could pick an MVP um, of the of the novel. Who would yeah, you sure. pick as your MVP? Mm -hmm. uh, um, it's it's this is this one's tough. Um, <laughs> this one this one's a little tough, um, just because uh, I don't want to put any like preconceived spin on it because I have a favorite character and they <laughs> do have action in the scene, but I don't want to. I don't think they're the MVP. I think that mine uh, you you go first like give me a second to think about it, actually. <laughs> sorry i know all that deliberation I, and i changed but. i'm going i'm going to go surprise i'm gonna go with molly weasley okay um she i just i think it's so important for this poor kid who has no idea what family could be for this woman not batting an eye you know and just taking him in and you know like i said earlier when we were talking about that first scene that she's in she, you know, oh, where are we going, guys? Even though she has sent so many children. She has been across that platform so many times. Mm -hmm. She was doing that for Harry. Like, I have that written in my margin that just says, she did this for Harry before she even knew who he was. And I think that's also important. She didn't do this because, oh, my gosh, that's the famous Harry Potter. She did this because, oh, that's a kid who needs somebody in his corner. Yes. And I think this it was the beginning it's the beginning of a very important relationship between Harry and Molly. So, yeah. um, okay. So mine, mine's going to be a, I think a controversial pick, but I'm, oh. I'm going this for, for word for word, MVP, most valuable player. The story would not be the same without Vernon Dursley. Because <laughs> if he was raised in a loving home, I, in, instead, in a Vernon was a nice and decent father. I think that the story would be a drastic change and we might we might get a little bit like more and I don't want to say it's like like spoiling of Harry but I think we'd get a very different character and the book mm -hmm. would have taken a turn that I don't think I can really predict or say how it would go but I don't think the story would be the same without without Dursley there and like you could say like Dudley or something but mm -hmm. I think Vernon was the more driving force he was doing mm -hmm. most of this to please his his uh, his son and his wife, really. That was like his two motivations that they talk about in the book. Uh, so I know, I know, I know I'm opening the gates <laughs> up with this take. with a very <laughs> hot take. And I'm not saying I like the character at all. I'm just saying that he is the reason things go there. If we wanted to go further, we could say Voldemort, but I think he is not really, for being the main antagonist, he is not present enough in this story at this point for me to. I think, yeah, I think Voldemort. 
Voldemort will have his ground for MVP soon. <laughs> yes, very soon. <laughs> but yeah, I, oh, that is a very, very hot take, but I'm here for it. <laughs> here for it. We, we went to the opposite sides of the coin there. <laughs> um, but anyhow, with that, thank you guys so much uh, for listening. If you tagged through all this here. <laughs> um, next week, we'll, we will be diving into um, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. But uh, thank you guys so much. I'm Haley. I'm Brett. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next week. You have been listening to The Classroom, a U92 production. Feel free to tune in to our parent station of 91.7 FM of Morgantown, West Virginia. There will be a new episode of The Classroom live on U92 every Friday at 11 a.m. If you are out of our terrestrial reach, feel free to stream U92 at u92themoose.com. Easy enough, right? On our homepage, not only would you be able to find and stream new alternative music, but you would also be able to quickly spot our podcast and many other great podcasts produced by some of our friends. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will catch you soon.